New England's Muslim community is growing, but growing political power will take some time. I am activist. A lot of politicians come to me to mobilize this community. And this year I said, well, the community wants to see somebody that look like us. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. This week, stories from our series Facing Change about Muslims getting out the vote and the candidates. We'll also visit with a family that escaped Syria to find a new home in Connecticut and their children a new school in Vermont. They came here just for us, for our future, to complete our study, to complete our education. And we'll go to a clothing company that's changing what it means to be made in America. Yeah, this is a 100% American-made company. We opened the door to anybody who wanted to work, and the first people who walked through the door were people that had just walked into this country. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, the new sound of political power. I am an immigrant, and I also happen to be a Muslim. So with all this complex identity that I have, I can relate and I can speak with many different constituents. But first, today's show features stories from the New England News Collaborative series, Facing Change. We've been looking into the shifting demographics of New England and the impact of immigration on our aging population. We're going to start, though, with the story about out-migration. The shifting policy coming out of the Trump administration around immigration has many people worried. People who are here on visas, people seeking green cards, people in the process of seeking asylum or refugee status. And that has forced a growing number of people to leave the U.S. heading north to Canada. Our reporter Kathleen Masterson from Vermont Public Radio has been following the story from the towns on both sides of the Canadian border. She joins us now. Kathleen, welcome back to Next. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Tell us what you're seeing at the border between the U.S. and Quebec and why you went up there to cover the story. You know, it turns out that there's really one highly trafficked area in upstate New York, but Quebec, of all the Canadian provinces, is seeing the highest traffic of basically people fleeing the U.S., to seek refugee status in Canada. It's a number of different people. It could be people who are leaving because um, they have refugee paperwork in process here in the U.S., but they're scared that now U.S. officials may not see that paperwork through, or they may not be granted status. Or it could be people who simply ended up in the U.S. on a tourist visa and think, ooh, this is my chance to get to Canada to apply. So hearing that, I went up to a now famous crossing area, Roxham Road in Champlain, New York, in the northeastern corner of a uh, state New York, where many people are crossing. And indeed, when I was there um, in the morning, the U.S. Border Patrol was sitting on the U.S. side, and he said two families had already crossed into Canada. And then when I was there, I witnessed a woman and her young infant also walking over. And again, they, they walk knowingly into arrest. The Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on the other side, are sitting there at this popular crossing and say, you know, if you cross the border, that's an illegal act. We will have to arrest you. Um, if it's someone who's not a criminal, if they don't have weapons on them or drugs, if they're truly seeking asylum, they don't get charged with a criminal offense. They just get picked up by the police on the Canadian side and taken over to the border station where they'll uh, file their official paperwork uh, requesting asylum in Canada. 
It was so interesting, Kathleen, when you were first telling me the story and describing what you were seeing, it almost sounded like a, a type of a slow motion escape. You've got U.S. officials who know what's going on, and they're on one side of the border on this dead-end road, really. And then you've got Canadian Mounties on the other side of the border who are fully expecting people to cross over. Tell us a bit more about the scene that you witnessed, because th- this woman uh, who was carrying a, a suitcase and a small child basically knew she was going to get arrested on the Canadian side of the border, and the officials on both sides just watched and let it happen. So the woman I saw, uh, she was stopped by a U.S. Border Patrol agent on the U.S. side. Her taxi was stopped. Her paperwork is inspected. She must have had her paperwork in order, as in that means she was in the U.S. legally. Who knows if she was on a tourist visa or if she was here um, awaiting refugee status. Uh, but she was in the U.S. legally, so the U.S. Border Patrol cannot do anything other than to let her keep going, even though it's clear that she is going to cross, intends to cross illegally into Canada. Once she approached that border, again, the, the Mounties called out to her, and so she knew she was walking into arrest. So um, it is a bit surreal. You know, it it is kind of like a slow-mo escape. I like that description, but it's also, you know, who knows how long. And she had traveled from her home country and then within the U.S. It's really hard to get that information. So it frankly may be a very, very long process for her and a long journey. How are the people getting to this particular place where they're making this border crossing? Well, the popular border crossing, Roxanne Road, is about 25 miles north of Plattsburgh, New York. So many people are somehow getting to Plattsburgh, either on a Greyhound, presumably by bus, but they certainly could fly in there as well. And then they're calling cabs there. So cabbies actually are so used to getting requests for Roxanne Road. They all know it. They all know what it means. And they have procedures, at least um, the ones that are following procedure, where they would actually ping Border Patrol if they get a request that sounds suspicious play the tape so when the call comes in we contact border patrol we say hey we got a call it's going to this location here's our eta to that location Um, our cars are tracked by gps so the people that go across the border have gotten creative so last minute they switch up and say okay i'm not going to the border duty free i'm going to go to a different road when they do that uh, we just hit our button on dispatch as protocol and then the dispatcher knows to let Border Patrol know the GPS location and where it's headed to. So that was one cabbie I spoke with uh, who wanted to remain anonymous, but they have a very elaborate method of not only pinging Border Patrol in advance if they get a call going to Roxham Road, but if someone changes en route or does something suspicious, they have a couple of different codes uh, that they can call back to their HQ, and then their um, dispatch would actually call Border Patrol to say, hey, and maybe even give them a blow-by-blow, say they're turning on this road, they're turning here, because they've had situations where people change the address and then kind of direct the cab where to go. And again, then Border Patrol can pull over that cab. But if the person's paperwork is in order, then they have to let them go. If they're not, the cabbie did describe one Sudanese man who he gave a ride to. The Sudanese man, according to the cabbie, asked him to turn off the GPS, um, which they did not. And then he was actually arrested on the U.S. side. So his paperwork must not have been in order. But all of the cabbies I spoke with have a pretty um, standard protocol of calling Border Patrol when they get a request to go somewhere right up along the Canada border. Obviously, this is a, an illegal crossing point because it's not a, a place where there's customs enforcement. Why not just go across at the border? There's, there's plenty on the way up to Montreal, both on the Vermont side and on the New York side. Why not just cross at a border crossing point? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, in 2004, the Safe Third Country Agreement went into effect between the U.S. and Canada, and that was designed to sort of stop refugees from, quote-unquote, asylum shopping. And it states basically that uh, asylum seeker must apply in the first safe country, either the U.S. or Canada, that they land in. So if a person were to land in the U.S. Uh, for many different reasons, because they walked here from South America, because their plane came here first, they couldn't get a direct flight to Canada, um, then they're legally required to apply for asylum here. So if people seeking asylum in Canada go to a legal border checkpoint like La Col, which is only, you know, 15 minutes away from this illegal crossing um, at Roxham Road, they will be turned away because they are legally in the U.S. and um, they have to keep their claims here. However, if they appear in Canada, even if they're witnessed walking across the border illegally, once they're in Canada, they're in Canada and they can apply for refugee status there. But they're processed pretty quickly once the Mounties arrest them and take them to a Canada Border Services Agency checkpoint, then they um, can only hold them for three days. If they're a regular asylum seeker, it's different if they are criminal or if they don't reveal their identity. And then they're free. They're turned loose. They can take a bus or a taxi to Montreal. They can go anywhere as long as they keep the Canadian authorities up to date on their address and their whereabouts in Canada. What do we know about the people who cross over in this way? What happens to them next? And then and where are they headed after they after they make this border crossing? Yeah, the vast majority of them do cross in the upstate New York area, which is right near the Lacal border station. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, arrest them. Um, once they've done a criminal background check, they take them to the Lacal border point, again, 15 minutes away in Canada, just north of New York, turn them over to Canada Border Services Agency, and that's where they start their paperwork for asylum. They get fingerprinted, and they fill out a lot of forms, and then, you know, they're released. Uh, they can take a bus into Montreal from there. They can call family. But then the process continues where um, their case would be evaluated. And I was not told a time frame. It could be could be months, but I was not told a time frame on when they might hear back for uh, if they get refugee status or not. But they get some hospital fees covered if they need care. They can rent their own apartment. They can get work permits. So once that process has started of applying for asylum, they are free to move about Canada. You, you talked to some people on the other side of the border, but you weren't really able to, to talk to any of these refugees, people, people seeking asylum. Who, who did you get to talk to uh, while you were in Canada? Yeah, I went to one of the residences in Montreal where many people go, um, and it was really a multitude of nationalities kind of flowing out of the door. I stood there for a couple hours, um, but many people didn't want to talk, and it was unclear if they were scared of media or certainly not wanting to jeopardize their case for asylum. I did talk to a middle-aged Syrian couple that had come from the U.S. They didn't want to share how they came, but presumably if they were in the U.S., they may have come illegally. It's a little hard to tell. There are a few exceptions to the Safe Third Country Agreement. And they were applying for asylum in Canada. Many people were from African countries that were speaking Arabic. I spoke with a nice uh, gentleman who spoke French and Arabic, and he was sort of translating a few a few comments and, and said that many people were from North African countries. Coming into Quebec, the top three nationalities are people from Eritrea, Sudan, and Burundi. And nationwide across Canada, it's Eritrea, Burundi, and Syria. But a lot of people were, I think, to some degree scared or certainly not willing to, to talk to a stranger on the street about their about their situation. But there's clearly a lot of people who are using this residence as a, as a temporary point while they look for apartments and things. Many of them have come directly from the Lacal border station. I guess I wonder as a reporter what you're taking away from so many people 
just not wanting to talk to you about about this very important story. Yeah, it certainly has been interesting. I, you know, as a reporter over the years, you do a lot of man on the street where you're just approaching people that uh, didn't necessarily know you were going to be there and don't necessarily want to talk to the media. Uh, and this is certainly the most that I've had people not want to talk and sometimes not even acknowledge uh, that I was there asking a question. But, you know, I think it's really understandable. I think, first of all, there's a language barrier. So people don't want to say anything or, or accidentally be misrepresented. And then, you know, you just also have to imagine what they've been through. Uh, again, I don't know everything happening in all these these countries of origin, but there are a lot of really war-torn areas um, where who knows how people got to Canada, even if it was via the U.S. or via another three or four countries before. So you can only imagine that they really don't necessarily know the legal system and have so many questions and um, varying levels of advice and support that they're getting. So, you know, I, I didn't take it personally, but it was interesting to me how many people really um, were were suspicious and, and certainly not wanting to talk. I can't imagine that this flow of asylum seekers moving across the border from the U.S. to Canada is going to stop anytime soon. What is next for you? What is it you're looking to to cover as this story continues? Yeah, that's right. We're imagining that as the weather gets warmer, more people will uh, cross. So I certainly want to stay in touch with people on both sides of the border. Made some good contacts up in Canada, plenty of people who are following through refugee organizations, legal advice. So I'm really looking to find some people who are willing to share their story, even if it's anonymously, and, and hear why they left the U.S. Were they in paperwork proceedings in the U.S. and and got some indication or had fear that they would not be able to get status here in the U.S. Because technically, both the United States and Canada uh, have the same standards for what counts as a refugee. It's an international standard. So I want to hear more about what's their fear, why did they leave, um, and and more about their story. And and then looking to hear that on the U.S. side, too, if, if there's any rumors or considerations of people uh, who've heard about relatives go up and think, hey, maybe my odds are better in Canada. So looking to follow that on both sides. Kathleen Masterson has been covering this story for Vermont Public Radio, the New England News Collaborative, and for NPR. Kath, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Great to be here. In Vermont, we've been following the story of the town of Rutland that has wanted to bring Syrian refugees there. But President Trump's immigration orders have thrown plans like that into doubt. Our reporter Cassandra Bassler found one prep school in the state that's trying their own approach to bring in those fleeing from the war. They're offering scholarships to refugees who are already living in the U.S. Cassandra followed one family from Shoreline, Connecticut, to the snowy north of Vermont as they try to make sure their children can study in New England. Outside a U.S. immigration office tucked in a strip mall in East Hartford waits the Al-Salumi family, mom, dad, and their two daughters and eldest son, Eamon. He's 16. They've traveled more than an hour from their home in West Haven, hoping to get fingerprinted for their green card applications. They need green cards to start their pathway to citizenship. Yeah, we had an appointment yesterday, but it's canceled because of the snow. The Al-Salumi started this process last fall, but when I asked about how many months until they'll get the green card, Eamon says... I really don't know yet. I maybe about four, five, something like this. So the family heads home to West Haven to wait. Cozied next to his sisters on a leather couch in the family room, Eamon says they waited almost two years for approval to come to the U.S. We did about like 10 interviews or more than 10 and a lot of questions. They asked us about like from when we were born to now. The Al-Salumis come from home Syria, a city torn apart by civil war. They left to visit an aunt in Jordan about four years ago and never returned. 
Then the family moved to Connecticut a year and a half ago. Eamon's mother, Rawan, says she and her husband want to stay here for the children. Eamon translates. They came here just for us, for our future, to complete our study, to complete our education. Now Rawan takes English classes and looks after her younger daughter, Jenna, who's in third grade. Mazin, the father, works at a New Haven pizza shop and dreams of opening a Syrian restaurant. It's not homes, but it's not unusual to see Muslim people in West Haven. It's a diverse urban area. But the two oldest kids don't go to school here. Eamon and Gaina study four hours away at St. Johnsbury Academy in Vermont. It's an international school in a mostly white, blue-collar town set in the Green Mountains. They start the day at chapel on campus with announcements from their headmaster, Tom Lovett. Please stand and join us for the Pledge of Allegiance. Eamon stands with his classmates for the Pledge of Allegiance in his shirt and tie, part of the dress code. Out of a thousand students, the Al-Salumis are the only ones who speak Arabic. Robin Greenstone says that's good for them because they get immersed in the English language. She teaches their ESL class. It's a real pleasure to get to know Eamon and Heine and to watch their development. I feel honored to be a part of their new life here. I'm just very pleased. Greenstone says learning English has boosted the students' confidence in class and helped them make friends. <laughs> Eamon, Gaina, and their classmate Michelle LeBlanc show me around campus. Eamon tells Michelle how he joined the basketball and soccer teams. Gaina doesn't like sports as much, but she might try skiing for the first time. Tomorrow we have a trip to mountains for skiing, right? Yeah. Yeah, tomorrow. Are you going to try it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Instead of joining the ski team, Gaina would rather join clubs like fashion design. She's St. Johnsbury's first student to wear hijab, the religious headscarf. Michelle likes how Gaina coordinates her hijab perfectly with her outfits. After class, Gaina shows me her home on campus. She lives in a house with other international students from the Ukraine and China. She points out a chalkboard hung up in the kitchen where the girls doodled a message. Uh, this means we'll come in Arabic. Eamon lives right across the street in a house for boys. They go home to pray at sunset and eat dinner in the cafeteria. Sometimes they miss their family and their mom's cooking back home in Connecticut. On tough days, Gaina may talk to a school counselor. Tom Lovett, the headmaster, says Gaina told him a little bit about what it's like living in Vermont after fleeing Syria. Gaina said that uh, this is the first time she's felt safe in a long time. Lovett says St. Johnsbury is doing all it can to make Syrian students feel welcome in the remote town. He asks Eamon and Gaino what more the school can do. Of course, they're so gracious, oh, nothing, nothing, we love it. But then when pressed, it was to have more students from their culture and who spoke their language. So um, that's our goal. Lovett says the school is ready to sponsor more Syrian refugees. But if President Donald Trump continues strict immigration policies, prospective students would already have to be settled in the United States. In the meantime, the Al-Salumis prepare for college. Gaina wants to become a doctor and Eamon an architect. He says his family wants to stay for the long term, no matter the political climate. I don't have to care about Donald Trump. I have to care about the people who I'm living with, like the people here at school, if they love us, if they want us. The Al-Salumis say they want a peaceful life in New England, where they can build a future. That's WSHU's Cassandra Bassler reporting. To see a short video of the Al-Salumi family at school in Vermont, go to nextnewengland.org.
Later in the show, we'll find out what a refugee from the war in Vietnam can tell us about the current wave of those fleeing war in Syria. But first, Muslim politicians trying to get out the vote. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. This week, we're featuring stories from our series Facing Change, exploring the demographic shifts in New England and the impact of immigration in our region. As more Muslim immigrants come to New England, they're pushing for a seat at the political table. It's taking some time, but as WBUR's Shannon Dooling found, a nonprofit based in Cambridge, Mass., is trying to jumpstart the effort. They're encouraging American Muslims across the U.S. to run for political office. The group, which is called Jetpack, will train potential candidates, regardless of party affiliation, with the goal of increasing civic engagement within Muslim communities. That's a big issue. A lot of the parents have been in an uproar lately that they're not getting uh, informed enough. With her three-month-old baby on her lap and her two-year-old son strumming a guitar in the background, Nicole Mosalem ticks through her hypothetical platform as a candidate for Malden School Committee. And I hear they might have to cut another two million from the school budget this year. Sitting around a cluttered table in Jetpack's shared office space, Mosalem learns the ins and outs of running for public office. The 34-year-old lives in Malden and is a director at her local mosque. She's been working with the political training group for over a month and admits she's got a way to go before she launches her run in June. Oh, there's so much to learn. (laughs) But it's definitely exciting. Uh, So the Islamic community is excited because if elected, I would be first um, Muslim elected in the city of Malden. And they really want to see that for the community. Um, Some of the parent groups that I'm involved in, they want a voice on the school committee as well. Part of Jetpack's mission is to help potential Muslim candidates identify opportunities for civic engagement and then to empower them. Another candidate in training is 41-year-old Sarah Khatib of Walpole. You know, we are a target of a lot of unfortunate rhetoric and even physical assaults. And I think, yeah, it can be a catalyst, you know. With a master's degree in structural engineering, Khatib has her sights set on the Walpole planning board. But why is this mother of four and political newbie gearing up for a campaign now? Well, she says it's time for Muslim community members to engage. As the community sees more and more people who are able, you know, step up and, and try to run, that it will give them confidence. And Jetpack, it's just a, a wonderful resource so that like somebody myself who, who maybe has that inclination to run, this gives you like the extra boost that you need to see it through. Providing this extra boost to people thinking about a bid for office is part of what Jetpack's co-founder and Cambridge City Councilor Nadim Mazin had in mind. In my opinion, organizing in the community is the best way to get started thinking about running for office. And running for office is one of the best ways to impact the local or state level community on issues of great important value to our everyday lives. As Massachusetts' first Muslim city councilor, Mazin wants to encourage other American Muslims to enter politics. But putting your name on a ballot means opening your life up to the public, and that's a tall task for anyone. For Muslims, Mazin says, it's just not something that communities have been focused on in the past. Muslims, to a great extent, have been on the defensive for the last couple of decades. When you are spending so much of your life on the defensive, it makes it difficult to do the work that is community-oriented. 
In New England, there are only a handful of Muslim elected officials, but Mazen sees plenty of potential. Jetpack had only three Massachusetts participants earlier this month. After the launch, more than 100 people nationwide responded. Mazen says political organizing in communities has the potential to translate into voters at the polls. But he adds tipping political scales is not the sole motivation. Let's go beyond that to the fact that it's incumbent upon Muslims to achieve justice in the community, to protect people's housing, to visit the sick. It's incumbent upon Muslims to be part of that discussion. All of that comes out of community solidarity, community organizing. I am activist. A lot of politicians come to me to mobilize this community. And this year I said, well, the community wants to see somebody that look like us. Diko Jabril has been living a page out of the community organizer playbook for decades now. Jabril is Somali and came to the U.S. as a refugee when she was 12 years old. She and her family have called Roxbury home ever since, and soon she hopes to represent the district as the first Muslim elected to the Boston City Council. We are underrepresented and... and I encourage always to civically get engaged the community, and now I encourage them more to get engaged because this is the time that we cannot shy away. When asked about her chances of winning, she pauses and says, I don't know. We'll see. It's uphill battle. But um, regardless what happens, this campaign will inspire others to get more engaged. Even if that engagement happens one candidate at a time. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. In Portland, Maine, There's a Muslim politician who has already gained substantial political clout, and now he's working to get out the vote. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever has more. If the candidates for citizenship would please raise your right hands. Inside a cavernous glass and steel chamber that overlooks Portland's busy waterfronts, dozens of immigrants are about to become U.S. citizens. That I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America. Roughly three and a half percent of Maine's population is foreign born. And in the last decade or so, the state has seen a significant influx of refugees from conflict zones like Iraq and Somalia. They've concentrated in the state's bigger cities with Portland the biggest. Most immigrants who want to be naturalized have to wait five years to become eligible. But as one speaker at this ceremony notes, these new Americans are not mere citizens. They are now potential voters. So please do register. That is one of the responsibilities that is required of everyone who is a citizen of this country. That's Pius Ali, an immigrant from Ghana, slightly overstating the responsibility to vote. Ali earned his U.S. citizenship almost a decade ago, but his emphasis on the importance of voting is easy to understand. On the same day Donald Trump was elected president, Ali was elected to Portland City Council continuing the political rise of the first African-born Muslim to hold public office in Maine. And he won more votes than any other candidate for city council in at least 20 years. That's a testament to pretty broad support, but Ali says he counted on newly energized immigrant voters to back his candidacy. He adds that all his voters, immigrants or not, want him to be a voice for new Mainers. I have a very complex identity. I'm a black man uh, in today's America. I am an immigrant, and I also happen to be a Muslim. So with all this complex identity that I have, I can relate and I can speak with many different constituents. They will also feel comfortable reaching out to me instead of maybe other counselors. He's really been 
a vital cog in the wheel, if you will, over the last 10 years of trying to make sure that community needs are being heard. He was, just became a really trusted leader for a lot of people and honestly worked his ass off. Ethan Strimling is Portland's mayor and a political ally of Ali's since Ali made a successful run for the city school board four years ago. Strimling now convenes a monthly meeting with Muslim leaders, and he's pushed the startup of a city office to help new Mainers and other underserved residents find work. Strimling says the city's immigrant communities are starting to show some real political muscle. And as more and more of this generation has become citizens and become more active in our schools, you've really started to see it. I think anybody who is in politics in the city of Portland is going to come up very short if they aren't connected to the immigrant community and aren't listening to that community in terms of what their needs and expectations are. Expectations such as jobs, better school services, inclusion... Councillor Ali wants all of those, but he is starting with smaller bites at the apple and focusing on constituent service, and he's wary of bold moves. He says, for instance, that the time is not right for a proposal by Mayor Strimling to allow legal immigrants to vote before they are naturalized. First, Ali says, it's impractical. Needed permission from state government is unlikely, at least for now. The state's governor, Paula Page, it's worth noting, is famous for resisting liberal immigration policies. Second, Ali says, recent immigrants from unstable countries need time to settle and learn before jumping into a pretty poisonous political environment here in the U.S. Politics is already toxic as it is right now. So to bring in people who do not have a vast understanding of this uh, will be disservice to that community. So totally great idea, but there's a lot of work uh, to be done. National data show that recently naturalized citizens tend to vote at lower rates than those who have been here for decades or are U.S. born. At the recent waterfront naturalization ceremony, there was an appreciable line at a table the League of Women Voters set up to help fresh-minted citizens register. Luc Armand Ningamarize says he arrived here from Burundi five years ago, and he looks to Pius Ali to carry the immigrant banner into city politics. When I was congratulating him, I'd say, wow, now we are seeing your steps. So just know that there are some other people behind you who are doing the same steps as uh, he did. So it's, it's a great victory not only for him, but also for the immigrant communities around Portland. Ningama Rize had another message for Ali. The councillor could count on his vote in the next election. That's Fred Bever reporting. More than a million Vietnamese came to the U.S. as refugees in the years after their civil war ended. More than 65,000 Vietnamese now make New England home. We found someone from this community, a poet who grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, who's sharing a bit about his experience, helping others understand what life is like for this current wave of refugees coming from Syria and Iraq. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has his story. It's 1975. Saigon has fallen to the North Vietnamese. The end of the war is the beginning of a global humanitarian crisis. The poet Ocean Vuong and his refugee family arrive in Hartford, Connecticut, 15 years later. He's two years old. The first place they stay is in a hotel. And then we ended up in a one-bedroom apartment, and then we went into a tenement, 
on New Britain Avenue. Then our family separated, and then we started to live with relatives. Then we went to Glastonbury for a short while, East Hartford. Anywhere someone could get a nice place, we, everyone would just go there. Vang is now 27. His poetry has been featured in The New Yorker more than once. He's published several collections and is a literary voice people are paying attention to. Like any good son, I pull my father out of the water, drag him by his hair through white sand, his knuckles carving a trail, the waves rush in to erase, because the city beyond the shore is no longer where we left it. Vong writes about dislocation and about the idea that without political violence, he wouldn't be alive. His mother's father, his grandfather, is an American who fought in Vietnam. And I think this this story becomes very integral to me growing up in, in America, particularly how we think of war in the timeline. History is slippery. When does war truly end in Vietnam, in the Middle East? And when we look at the, the Syrian crisis, it's strange to me that we call it crisis. Like, what do we expect? You know, and I think part of that is a surprise that comes with the linear timeline. Now it's over, right? Far from it. In school, the timeline, Vong says, went like this. Something bad happened in an Asian country. And then, a couple of pages later, it was on to the Gulf War. It was Vong's grandmother who died in 2008, his mother and her sisters who taught him about the Vietnam War, and what life was like before. You know, my family, they come from a long line of rice farmers, and they just worked on their fields. And a lot of the Vietnamese, even the, the soldiers who fought, did not know the politics behind what they were doing. And so it was utter chaos. He began to write down his family's words, songs and images they described of fields lighting on fire. He wanted to know more. And so when I asked the next question, why, why, I was suddenly become the precocious child in the family. You know, and then all of a sudden it's like, stop. We don't want to unravel pain because we have already survived. Vong's brother was born in the U.S. He is a typical American teenager, Vong says. He likes girls. He has a job at Stop and Shop. And he's lived a safer, more stable American childhood than Vong. It made me happy to see that ultimately one of us, at least, in the family lived, you know, without fear of displacement, without uncertainty, without navigating through not being able to speak. And for a long time, my family was mute in society. And there was such shame in being an outsider. You know, before going to school every morning, my mother would say, be careful, you're already Vietnamese. And I always had this sense that I was a perpetual trespasser, you know, a guest. And in a way, we were. Despite their turmoil, Vong says most of his family members are now living very American lives, full of drama and hope, and some version of the American dream. For a brief time, Vong thought his was to be in corporate America. He became a business major for about three weeks. Then, at Manchester Community College in suburban Hartford, he was introduced to literature, philosophy, big ideas. That continued at Brooklyn College. He began to see this inheritance of war in the Greeks, in Homer. It's in the writings of the poet Paul Celan, a Holocaust survivor, who had a major influence on Vang. And it's in a children's book called Thundercake by Patricia Polacco. He read it when he was 11. Vang jumps up to get it down from a shelf. This is so important. This is one of the first books I ever read. And you can see it's a very simple book. This is like sort of like my little totem. 
when I'm writing. It's about a young girl and her Russian grandmother, a survivor of war, and they make a cake with the coming of a storm. Perhaps Patricia Polacco never dreamed that a Vietnamese boy in Hartford would read her book and see himself. And yet it happened. Storytelling can make this happen where we can recognize one another. In college, Vang read something else that's always stayed with him. It's a 1915 speech by President Woodrow Wilson. He's addressing 3,000 new American citizens in Philadelphia. This is the takeaway for Vong, read by an actor. I was born in America. You dreamed dreams of what America was to be, and I hope you brought the dreams with you. I was just so surprised that here's the president of the United States empowering immigrants. Usually it's always, you know, being talked down to. You know, we're always asked to prove ourselves. But here is the most powerful man in the country saying, here's a blank slate. Write on it what you want. Add your dream. Vong's American dream, it's simply the possibility of things. He recently bought a little house in western Massachusetts where he hopes to bring his mother someday. Vong says it will allow him to grant her American dream a garden. And he came back because he realized... He's a New Englander. He mentions a train ride. He's heading north, looking out the window, seeing the fields, the marshes, the mist rising over them. And all of a sudden I said, wait a minute, I know that. I never saw that in New York. And that mist was home for me. Ocean Vong says he never thought he would feel at home in America. You can find all the stories from our Facing Change project at nextnewengland.org. After the break, when made in America means made by new Americans. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of housing and homelessness. In Portland, Maine Wednesday, Maine Congresswoman Shelley Pingree held a roundtable with business leaders to highlight the role of immigration in that state's economy. For the venue, Pingree chose a small business that makes fleece jackets with materials made in the U.S. and employs mostly immigrants. Maine Public Radio's Patty White paid a visit last October when the company was about a year old. Fleece jackets are so ubiquitous these days, you'd think it'd be easy to find the materials needed to make them. But not if you're committed to utilize only materials that are made here in this country. It took us six months to find pocket fabric made in the U.S. for jackets and vests. In fact, it took a good year of sleuthing to find all American-made material, says Ben Waxman. He's co-founder of American Roots, which specializes in company apparel, fleece jackets, vests, and pullovers that can be customized with the business logo. Those pockets, by the way, are made in Colorado. Most of the fleece is made in Massachusetts. Zippers are manufactured in California. And the labels are made right here in Lewiston, Maine. They're all stitched together at American Roots' bright, daylight-filled warehouse just a few blocks from downtown Portland. Eight sewing machines hum along to the sounds of Bruce Springsteen. Once the search for U.S.-made products was complete, American Roots co-founder Whitney Reynolds says she had to embark on another difficult search. We needed to find a workforce, and we found that it wasn't really out there, so we really needed to train them. 
American Roots partnered with Portland Adult Education, Goodwill, and Coastal Enterprises to offer a seven-week training program. Reynolds says 30 people responded to the ad. Out of that 30 that we vetted, two of them were native Mainers. And I was shocked to see that. Um, Two of those people, and then one didn't show up for the interview. (laughs) So, um, So clearly the majority was, you know, new Americans. My name is uh, Dua Khalifa. I'm from Portland, Maine, originally from Iraq. <laughs> Dua Khalifa is a top stitcher. She glides a flea sleeve through her sewing machine to add finishing details. When I just first came, it's just like um, confused and a little bit scared because I've never worked uh, before. So, But Whitney, Ben, oh my God, they're like very kind people, and I feel like they care about us. Khalifa is one of eight Stitchers American Roots employees. All are women, and they're all new Americans. Our first training program had a sign up on the wall where we would write, uh, you know, thread in English, and then write it in Arabic and French and Spanish. The women had to learn Stitch-specific English and convert their metric system math skills to the U.S. system. The women also had to learn something else, how to unionize. In fact, that was Ben Waxman's idea. We believe every worker should have a voice, regardless of how small we are and how big we become. Before starting American Roots, Waxman spent more than a decade working for the national AFL-CIO. In that time, he met workers who had felt firsthand the effects of the decline in domestic manufacturing, and Waxman dreamed of starting a business that produced something 100% U.S.-made. When he and Reynolds launched American Roots a year ago, they prided themselves on offering a good place to work with a starting pay of $12.50 an hour and benefits. Still, they wanted employees to unionize. You know, someday it's not going to be Witt and I on the floor every day. It's going to be a different manager, and so those workers need to have a voice. American Roots employees chose the Steelworkers Union to represent them. Dua Khalifa says she likes having the extra support. As a woman come from Iraq, it's good for me. It's make me feel strong woman. You know, I have somebody to um, reach me what I'm supposed to be do. Because this is first job for me. This is probably a good time to ask the question, how could American Roots pull this all off financially? They pay their workers above minimum wage. They use more expensive American-made components. But they have to sell their apparel at a competitive price. Waxman admits that it's tough. He and Reynolds scrape by for a year without taking paychecks. We would be lying if Whitney and I said someday we don't want a lake house. Um, That's the truth. I mean, you know, we're not doing this for our health. We're doing this to make a living. Uh, There's a choice to be made on profit over greed in our minds. And making 100% profit versus making a 50% profit or versus making an 800% profit. Waxman says they choose to take a profit on the lower end of the scale. And he thinks sales will make up for that. American Roots has already exceeded its first-year production goal of 8,000 garments by more than twofold, sending some 20,000 garments to market. Soon, they'll expand into other apparel and fabrics. And there's an upcoming training aimed at recruiting and hiring more employees. Though Waxman didn't expect that the company's workforce would be completely comprised of all new Americans, he says it's actually pretty fitting. Yeah, this is a 100% American-made company. We opened the door to anybody who wanted to work. And the first people who walked through the door were people that had just walked into this country. So that's about as American as it gets.
That's Maine Public Radio's Patty White reporting. Since she reported that story, American Roots has been hiring and plans to have a staff of 15 to 16 by March. They're adding a line of cotton sweatshirts this spring. Spanish speakers in Boston now have a bookstore that caters just to them. But the store, which is in Jamaica Plain, is actually part of an art exhibit and will be open for just five more weeks. WBUR's Simone Rios visited and reports on what the store means to some eager readers. Muerte a filo de obsidiana de Eduardo Matos Moctezuma. Los árabes de ayer y de mañana. Pablo Elguera recites titles from the shelves of Libreria Don Celes, or Don Celes Bookstore. Walk into the space and you see a normal used bookshop, massive stacks of books, and a cash register up front. But under the surface, it's an interactive art display, a performance space that's as much about the books as it is about living Latino culture. Elguera says his work is a response on one hand to the disappearance of bookstores, and on the other to the invisibility of the Spanish language. Despite the fact that the Latino communities throughout the United States are growing exponentially, uh, we have less and less uh, access to books in Spanish. In New York City, where I live, um, the last uh, major bookstore that sold books in Spanish closed 10 years ago. The project is named after Calle Don Celes, a street in Mexico City famous for its many used bookstores. For Elguera, the installation is a portal into Latin America. If you actually are in the middle of Montevideo or in the middle of Mexico City, or, or I mean, like you walk into these like ancient uh, stores that have been there for like ever, and they have these piles and piles of materials, and you can get lost for hours looking for them. The bookstore has more than 10,000 Spanish language titles. The range is spellbinding, from art books to kids' books to cookbooks to books of poetry, and you can buy them. But Libreria Donceles goes deeper than what's on the shelves. These are the kind of things that I hope people can um, experience somewhat when they are here in the bookstore. They can spend as long as they like and that they are exposed not just to the, to the ideas in the books, but to the very physical and very sensorial experience of the book, which is really uh, an object that, it, that must be touched, that, that, that it must be smelled, that has a texture. That, that has watermarks, that has like these weird uh, markings by some anonymous reader that preceded you. The bookstore is housed at Project Urbano, a nonprofit in Jamaica Plain focused on art education. On some evenings, there will be discussions, talks, open mics, and other performances. During a recent writing workshop at the bookstore, a group of young artists form a circle and discuss the books that moved them in their childhood. Salvador Jimenez Flores, a native of Mexico, says he wasn't raised around books. I didn't grow up with this reading culture like my parents reading to me. They were just making sure that I had enough to eat and dress and stuff like that. So I wasn't so into books. I was more about exploring the streets and playing with my friends and getting in trouble. So I, I see that as a way of reading. Later in life, Flores took to writers like Nobel Prize winner Octavio Paz some of whose titles can be found at the bookstore. So we got Capitan Calzonicios. It's Captain Underpants. Totally. <laughs> My kids <laughs> liked Captain Underpants. I didn't know the Spanish word for underpants. Carolyn Lewenberg recently visited Libreria Donceles to search for kids' books in Spanish. The way this space is transformed is so awesome. It's so cozy in here. It's never been so cozy with all the rugs, and they painted the walls yellow, and... 
the different bookshelves and yeah, the smell of the books. Lewinberg marveled at the intersection of bookstore and art installation. Having a bookstore in an art space kind of positions it in a way where you would think about it a little bit more. Like, why would a bookstore be in an art space? And then thinking, okay, well, are there a lot of Spanish bookstores around? And then that leads you to realize, no, there's not. The Boston area has a few used bookstores that sell titles in Spanish, but Libreria Donceles is the only one dedicated strictly to the language. Lina Maria Giraldo is an artist in residence for the city. Originally from Colombia, she's always on the hunt for books in Spanish. Finding one in Boston is like striking gold. Now, Giraldo says, standing in a bookstore specializing in her first language, she reconnects with her heritage. I'm an immigrant, and sometimes you lost where you're coming from, and now that I have a family and I'm an artist, having a space like that that is filled with books in your own language, it really brings your roots, it brings history, something that sometimes you can't explain to your daughter. It's very much about her four-year-old daughter. Giraldo says she struggles getting her to speak Spanish. If I force her, she will speak Spanish, but she usually answers me in, in English, and that kills me a little bit. And it's because of that, there's not really a lot of spaces where we can uh, talk in uh-huh. Spanish. And that, she says, is why Libreria Donceles matters. The art installation slash bookstore will be up until the end of March, when the books will be distributed for other uses in other places. That's WBUR's Simone Rios reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. I'd also like to thank Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.